Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host and fellow agitator is Adam Keller. <laughs> I mean, that was a that was an intense yeah, conversation was, for um, yeah, that was for was, over an hour. Yeah, I was not expecting um, that long. I, I wasn't either. Uh, I will say we have Chris, our brother from Local ninety eight, uh, does appear to be in the waiting room. So, uh, how about we uh, take a little break? Yeah, follow let's, up with Chris and uh, yeah, real really quickly uh, before we go to break and bring Chris on the line. Um, DSA's fundraising for striking Alabama coal miners is still up. You can donate through the end of the month. Um, I'll be on Ben Burgess's show on YouTube on Monday nice. Nice. debunking anti-union arguments, so you should tune into that. You can leave us a voicemail, 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. We've got a new hat. You can go to our store, unionly.io slash o slash TVLR. No caps. You can pre-order it. Pre-orders in March 11th. You can expect delivery by mid-April and... Uh, you can become a sustaining member of the program at the same place. Unionly.io slash O slash TVLR. That is it uh, for this half of the program. We're going to be talking about more stories uh, that the media ignores in favor of sensationalized culture war stuff, which we weren't, we're going to get to some of the stuff with that we didn't get to in the first half of the program. We'll be talking about Starbucks retaliation. We'll be talking about wage theft. And we will be talking to Christopher Doles, the president of IFPTE Local 98. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW-55A. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW-558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW-558.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or DSA North Alabama at Gmail for more information. 
Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we are here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone. That link is hmtn.link slash hb2. You'll also find more info on social media at Hometown Action. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at afge.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host and fellow agitator is Adam Keller, and we just wrapped up a one-hour conversation. My God, that was much longer than I anticipated with Alan Treadaway. He's an Alabama state representative, a former cop, and author of the anti-protest bill that just passed the Alabama House of Representatives. Per a message from one state senator that we received, a Republican state senator, mind you, it's not like it was it was a uh, a Democrat. Per message from one Republican state senator, it has no chance in the Alabama Senate in its current form, and there is not an appetite to quote-unquote fix it. So let's hope he's right, and it dies in the Senate. Um, maybe we can debrief after we finish, uh, Adam, maybe we can debrief for a second after um, we finish our conversation with uh, with Chris, because, like, like I don't know. It just that was seemed, a lot. That was a lot. That was... <laughs> still processing some of it it's like it's like he didn't want it seemed like he did not want to own up to what he was doing he was always saying you're reading too much into it you're reading too much into it and it's like all i'm doing man is reading the bill like if you don't reckon it shouldn't be enforced that way you shouldn't write it that way you know that's all i'm like i'm not i wasn't you know which is and honestly that's where you know you and i tend to agree with small government quote unquote type of people like you know you don't give government um you know it it, you don't give government these authorities unless you're willing to use them yeah yeah Um, i'm not (laughs) yeah Uh, you know he's talking about when i was talking like i he he said that he doesn't think you should 
sit in a cage for six months if you spit on a cop, okay? Right. But that's in the damn bill, okay? As is is written, a properly motivated (laughs) district Uh attorney, uh, attorney could throw somebody in prison for six months. If they prosecuted those charges for spitting on a cop, they they would the judge would have no choice no choice but to put somebody in 6 months and again like he's saying you know like i'm not going to go around spitting on cops i have been spat on i don't recommend it i don't enjoy it and i don't spit on people cuz like i'm an adult but right. also but also because i'm an adult I wouldn't want people who spit on me to be thrown in some of the most dangerous prisons on our planet. Right. I would take a an apology. I would uh, take an apology. Yeah, uh, that would be nice. They could just stop doing they it. Could no, ju- that would just be sufficient for me. <laughs> right. No handcuffs required. No just handcuffs. Just don't do it, bro. I yeah. Like, uh, and he said something about, like, I would, you know, people would be held accountable if they spit on you and, and, and a cop saw it. And I'm like, I for one, I doubt it. Also, our yeah. definitions of accountability probably look <laughs> yeah. different. Yeah, but I mean, for what I doubt it, I doubt, I doubt, if a cop sees somebody spit on me, they're going to arrest them. But even if they did, I would not want them to. I would not want them to. So anyway, I don't know. We're, we'll talk some more about it after we finish with Chris. Our next guest, our next guest is Christopher Doles. He is the president of IFPTE Local 98, represented fed- representing federal employees at the Army Corps in New York. Chris, thanks for taking the time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Great, great. So Chris is here to talk about the U.S. Senate's and uh, Chuck Schumer's seeming reluctance, their delay on approving President Joe Biden's nomination to the Federal Labor Relations Authority and the Merit Systems Protection Board. So we've got a lot of folks in the audience who are not federal employees, and even some federal employees are going to be like, what the hell is that? So, um, Chris, what the, what the hell is that? What are those two agencies? Sure, yeah. Uh, thanks so much again for the opportunity. Um, folks have probably heard of the National Labor Relations Board, right? That is the federal agency responsible for managing labor relations or, uh, um, you know, interpreting contracts and resolving disputes related uh, to labor relations in the private sector. Well, the federal sector has its own agency for that same purpose, and that is the Federal Labor Relations Authority. It was created by the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978, and it is the body responsible for governing labor relations in the federal sector for the 2.1 million of us federal employees. So, you know, it's the largest union employer in the country. It's almost the largest employer in the country, second to Walmart. Um, and it's a important sector for a lot of reasons. Um, it's a pace setter. It's, uh, you know, Trump used his influence to try to break the unions in the federal sector. Um, Biden is attempting to use his influence to try to repair some of that damage. Um, being, being that it's in the executive branch, it's the most direct influence that a president has in terms of labor relations. And so it serves as a bit of a bellwether um, for policy, um, you know, in general, you know, dating back to the Pat Go strike in 1981. You know, that was the early days of the Civil Service Reform Act and the early days of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And it's the way that Ronald Reagan kind of drew the line against labor and set the tone for, I would say, the decades ever since. 
So Federal Labor Relations Authority is a really important agency for all federal employees. I would say it's important for all Americans because the quality of labor relations in the federal government informs the quality of the service that we provide. Um, and there's obviously many services that we provide uh, the American population. And then very briefly, the, the Merit Systems Protection Board is, the, is another independent agency within the federal government responsible for hearing appeals for any number of personnel actions um, that may happen um, in a federal workplace. So if you are fired or you are discriminated against in one way or another, um, you can have recourse by appealing those decisions up to the Merit Systems Protection Board. It's responsible for upholding the merit principles, which of course are very important part of civil service um, merit principles are what replaced, you know, old cronyism and favoritism, and it's been in place for more than 100 years. And um, the nominees that President Biden has sent to the Senate um, are, they would, they would give the quorum that the Merit Systems Protection Board needs to do its job. They haven't had quorum in five years. That was a deliberate choice by Chuck Schumer's predecessor, um, uh, Mitch McConnell. He chose not to process Trump's, albeit they, I'm sure, terrible nominees, he chose not to process them to maintain an absence of quorum in order to make sure that none of these appeals can be heard. So for the past five years, a caseload of more than 4,000 appeals have gone unheard. Wow. There's 4,000 caseload backlog. And it's one of the many ways that the small government fundamentalists like Trump and McConnell have sought to undermine the, 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 the purpose of the federal government. And then at the FLRA, it's a different tactic. They stacked it with anti-labor uh, members. Uh, most importantly, of course, are the two that make up the current majority. That's James Abbott and Colleen Duffy Kiko. The two of them have, over the course of the last four plus years, ruled, um, you know, stepped way outside of what would be reasonable jurisprudence and overturned some 75% of the decisions in front of them, of the arbitrator's decisions in front of them, almost uniformly against unions. Um, any pretense of neutrality has been out the window, and Trump's war on federal workers effectively continues more than a year into Biden's administration. Right, right. That That's 4,000 cases in the Merit Systems Protection Board that have not been, that have not been adjudicated. That is huge what has uh, uh what are the kind of cases or what are what are some of the cases that have not been adjudicated that have been has it been sort of precedent setting for federal employees that these cases aren't that they're just sitting unanswered uh yes i mean the merit systems protection board has a relatively relative to the flra has a relatively narrow uh, impact with each case. Um, and so the absence of decisions isn't so much setting precedent as just gumming up the works where the precedent is getting set, which is really dangerous. Um, and it's not just the precedents that were set under Trump's years, but it's ongoing. Every decision coming out of the FLRA is new precedent. And the unions cannot afford to appeal every single one of them to the district court. Uh, the ones that they do all get overturned, and thank goodness for those. In fact, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is the author of the most recent um, decision, throwing out an, a really awful decision by the FLRA um, that uh, basically changed the obligation of agencies to negotiate changes in conditions of employment. I'll give that example, because I, if you're looking for an example, it's a good one, because 
Um, part of our talking points around this, and we have an open letter to Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer is you know, our senator here in New York, but he's obviously the majority leader. So in a sense, we're all his constituents. Um, and we are trying to convince him to prioritize these nominations because the precedents are so bad. So just to take this one example, the uh, the original Civil Service Reform Act that gave rise to current modern federal labor relations law, it, it enshrined a compromise between the unions and the agencies. It's a very different compromise than, than that which enshrined the National Labor Relations Board. But the federal unions gave up a bunch of important things. They have an extremely narrow scope of bargaining. We can't negotiate over wages. We can't negotiate over benefits. Uh, we have no right to strike. We're not even allowed to assert the right to strike. Um, so there's a whole raft of restrictions that don't apply to the rest of the privates, to the rest of the, the labor movement and other American workers. In exchange for those things, federal workers were guaranteed the right to negotiate procedures and arrangements that relate to their conditions of employment. And, and it's really important when you take the right to strike and the, the right to assert the right to strike and you take the right to negotiate wages and benefits. When you take all those things off the table, then what stands is really important to uphold. So what's mm -hmm. been happening over the last few years has been the steady chipping away. Trump did it through big executive orders, but also the FLRA majority that's still in place is continuing to chip away. I call it death by a thousand cuts. And this one most recent decision that was overturned further constricts the scope of bargaining so that no longer are agencies required even to do that little bit we have, which is negotiate procedures and arrangements related to conditions of employment. Um, at least it, uh, now it becomes the obligation of the union to demonstrate that there's a substantial impact. Previously, they basically had to do it for anything greater than de minimis. Um, and so this, this all taken together represents a constriction of the rights of federal employees, a reduction in the obligations of agencies to negotiate uh, with them. And uh, fortunately, that one decision was overturned because the unions did appeal it to the district court. Um, but there's many others that haven't been overturned. And it's going to take years to repair, assuming we get an actual neutral body in place, which isn't given because Chuck Schumer, despite having the votes, has failed to prioritize confirming the nominees. So why is that? Because the, you know, the the Democrats have a 50-50 split in the Senate. There is, you know, Manchin has basically announced that the Build Back Better plan is is dead, uh, that he would, you know, prefer American families, uh, uh, the, the child poverty rate to double than to, you know, continue the child tax credits. You know, so there's very, very little that Democrats can actually do right now. And, and basically that's limited to, you know, confirming Biden appointees. And they have been moving at a pretty feverish pace for the federal judgeships. Why are these nominations, which, you know, like you said, affect the second largest uh, uh, single group of American workers, you know, that's that's a lot of people uh, and the largest uh, set of union workers in the country. Why are the why are why is Chuck Schumer allowing these nominations to just sit by the wayside? I can't read Chuck Schumer's mind. Um, I can only speculate. I mean, he's clearly not prioritizing. It, so why isn't he prioritizing it? 
he's had the votes. Like you said, these confirmations aren't the the things that Manchin and Cinema are opposing, right? There's no indication that they wouldn't it wouldn't go through. He he has the votes. So currently, because Lujan is sick, uh, he he may not have the votes right now. But that makes it all the more important that we build the pressure on him to prioritize at the moment Lujan as well, or mm. the moment we convince Murkowski or one of the other moderate Republicans to support, which is something that the unions are doing, but. You know, uh, one of the nominees, the most important pressing one, uh, which is Susan Grunman to the FLRA, um, was out of committee and ready for confirmation in December, and he refused to prioritize it. Um, why is that? This is speculation, but I think it's safe to say that the Chuck Schumer brand of Democrat isn't as friendly to labor as we might hope. If he were, then the one place that they can have the most direct impact would be the thing that one of the many things that he would uh, prioritize. Um, I invite Chuck Schumer to prove me wrong. Show me you're a friend of labor and prioritize these confirmations. Prove to us that the Biden administration, which has been called the, the, the best friend American labor has had you know, in a generation, some say ever, um, pr- prove that that's true by being his ally in the Senate and actually making these these, uh, you know, confirming these nominations. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and <clears throat> you know, something that you mentioned to me the other day was, you know, what what is the relationship of unions to Democrats worth if we can't even get something like like this through? You know, I, I remember actually <clears throat> back in 2017 when the PRO Act was was kind of the litmus test for Democrats. And uh, I remember AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka coming to the Alabama AFL-CIO state convention and threatening to rescind the endorsement for Doug Jones if he didn't co-sponsor it, even though, you know, <laughs> even though Doug Jones was going to lose anyway. And it wouldn't have mattered if he co-sponsored it uh, because Republicans had the majority at that time. And Doug Jones had given verbal affirmation to Trumpka and our state Fed president that if it came before the House, he would vote for it. He just didn't want to co-sponsor it because of, you know, uh, you know, he thought that I and, and I would disagree with him, but he thought that that it wouldn't be good for his campaign, even though he was going to lose it anyway. So, I don't, you know, so like that, it seems to me that like the position of 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 labor as it relates to Democrats has kind of. It's much less aggressive right now when Democrats actually have the power. Like there's there's some amount of things that Democrats can do for working people in this country. And it it does seem like like we as a labor movement are more hesitant to speak against uh, to to speak about that than we were when they were not out of power. And I don't know that that's kind of I mean, it's a bug in my bonnet (laughs) that I've had for a while. I mean, at risk of going beyond the scope of what I'm here to talk about, um, I, I really agree. I think it's a major strategic problem for the labor movement in general. I think that we actually have, in some respects, I think that some of the strategy makers in the labor movement have kind of worked themselves into a, a riddle that they can't solve because everything is subordinated to you know, the maintenance of the allies they've convinced themselves they have instead of you know, building independent capital and leverage vis-a-vis all politicians and Mm. through that independence, being willing to call any of them to account. 
And this this alignment, which is you know perceived and real of labor in the Democratic Party camp, has led to a situation where we can be taken for granted, where we are not prioritized, where people like Chuck Schumer can prioritize you know performative losses, you know mm-hmm. uh, dying on hills, at, you know of of his own making. Um, in the Senate, because clearly that's what he's prioritized. At least that's what he did in the fall at the expense of very winnable things like staffing the government with merit systems protectors and the FLRA uh, uh, board that we need. Yeah, the thing for me, this is Adam jumping in. uh, It just seems like such low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Like if you just you, you want an easy victory to help working people, to help unions, to use authority that you have given a gridlocked government here you go right just like it's sit it's teed up for you you just got to hit the ball <laughs> and and they're like no we're not going to grab a bat actually um right. so it yeah it, it it's very frustrating i can imagine how frustrating it is for you and your members but um you know you kind of opened up with reminding folks and jacob just did it as well largest employer of union folks in the entire country. And so, you know, just like all contracts kind of relate to other contracts, all these Mm -hmm. fights are interrelated. Uh, Concessions draw more concessions, wins build on wins. And, you know, so I I definitely want to see this happen. I want to see some progress being made here so that things can get better for our federal union members, which I hope will then – you know, translate to to gains elsewhere in the private sector or in you know local and state government employees all across the board. So you know, really appreciate the the fight that you're undertaking. Thanks. If I may, could I just highlight some of the support we've already gotten? Yeah, um, yeah, that absolutely. was actually going to be my next question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, I. I, you know, so I'm at the Army Corps of Engineers in New York, uh, which is obviously under the Department of Defense, which is a massive piece of the of the federal mm-hmm. picture, of course. Um, and, you know, we're in New York, so we put out this open letter call. It's a it's drafted. It's posted at acecouncil.org, which is the Army Corps of Engineers Council in IFPTE, which is my international, the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. And just in the last three weeks, we decided to put out the call not to the national leaders of AFGE, NTEU, IFPTE, all the other Fed sector uh, unions. We decided to focus on the grassroots and prioritize connecting with other folks like me, local leaders, local presidents, you know, folks with small bargaining units that range from, you know, 100 workers to maybe a couple thousand on the high end. But we're talking about, you know, the Fed sector has a has more than a thousand, maybe upwards of two thousand different local unions, and we want to demonstrate to Chuck Schumer that yes, we are his constituents in New York, but this is not just a constituent issue in New York; it affects everybody. And so we put out a call to, well, we're we're making cold calls. We're we're calling through locals across the country, um, and we have a growing group of people making these calls to build a network of federal local leaders that will hopefully be the future of the federal sector labor movement. And just to you know, give some props to some of the folks who have signed on. Um, you know, we have the the uh, council at AFGE, Council 238, that represents their national bargaining unit in the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. A couple of Social Security locals uh, have signed on uh, in the South and as well as here in New York. Uh, a small local of electricians at the Architects of the Capitol have signed on. A bunch of Army Corps locals have signed on because that's obviously kind of where this 
whole start, this whole thing started, including uh, the Mobile District down near you guys, as well as uh, Louisville, Kentucky, Chicago, San Francisco, and Seattle. Um, the MSPB uh, Professional Association, the, the workers who staff the Merit Systems Protection Board, just signed on. They're our most recent signatory. Um, a small NOAA local in Seattle is part of it. A couple of energy locals out west at the Bonneville Power Authority have signed on. The National Association of Immigration Judges. We're up to 26 different locals have signed on to the onto the open letter, and we aren't stopping. We're going to keep building out this network, even if we lose and things continue to operate under Trump's rules. At the end of this campaign, we're going to have a new network of federal local leaders that are capable of coordinating action, coming together around common causes, and and, and it'll be a victory in any case. But we hope to also convince Chuck Schumer to get back into the fold and actually do the, one of the few things he can do easily and, and, and staff the MSPB and the FLRA. Yeah, that I completely agree with you on both fronts that that hopefully, surely, I mean, surely to goodness, this will result in a win and, and we will be able to get these uh, to get these agencies, uh, these boards staffed properly and, and, and see some wins for federal workers. And, and then by proxy, uh, hopefully some wins for non-federal workers. But also, I do think that that um, having a strong network of people uh, that that are in the same fights is important. I look forward to um, to bringing this up at my next local meeting. I'm a member of AFGE, Local 1858. I look forward to bringing it up at my next local meeting, uh, encouraging us to sign on. Um, I think it's important. I don't think I'll have an issue with that. Um, So, uh, you know, Chris, I thank you very much for for your work uh, up there in New York and uh, and for your work putting this this campaign together because uh, it's very important. And uh, and so let's let's hope that it passes. Thanks so much, Jacob and David. You guys do great work. Really appreciate it. I love listening to your show. And that's exactly the next step we need. So any listeners out there who happen to be federal sector, if you have any contacts with federal sector locals, this is from the bottom up. So even if you're not a local officer yourself, contact your local officers and say, again, the website is acecouncil.org. That's A-C-E-C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. And um, you'll see two things on there. One is the letter which includes the list of current signatories, and that's 26 and growing. And below that is a top 10 worst decisions by the Kiko and Abbott majority to give you a sense of how bad the FLRA leadership is. So if you're in a federal local, please ask your local leaders to sign on. When we hit 50 or 100, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I think we'll have a clearly viable campaign that hopefully Mm -hmm. we can use to pressure the leaders of our internationals to put some resources behind. And then um, we'll find a splashy way to deliver this letter to Chuck Schumer. That sounds great. I love, <laughs> I love splashy displays uh, uh, against politicians. It's one of my favorite things. So, <laughs> speaking my language, Chris, thank you very much for joining the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Good work. All right. All right. Uh, that was Christopher Doles, president of IFPTE Local 98 in New York, representing federal employees at the Army Corps of Engineers, talking about a campaign which, you know, like we said, is it, it, it's just the most, um, I mean, the most common sense kind of thing. You know, there's not very much that Democrats can do, and so they should do what they can. And right. protecting the <laughs> rights of the largest union workforce in the country, the second largest workforce period in the country. I think that, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is something that that Democrats should be doing in the Senate. And, and it's a shame that they haven't. And we appreciate folks like Chris. Yeah. 
putting putting some pressure on them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those where really they shouldn't have to embark on this campaign. Right. But I like something that Chris said though is you know they're they're activating folks and engaging folks all along these lines and. Uh, that will be cool to see how many future leaders and activists and organizers inside the unions uh, are going to grow out of this fight, hopefully a, a successful fight. But yeah. regardless, so I think that's a really cool uh, approach and perspective to bring to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so every week we try to do this segment last week in Southern Labor. Um, Jonah Furman writes a newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? You can read it at whogetsthebird.substack.com where he compiles everything that happens across the United States as it relates to labor. So we're talking new organizing, we're talking bargaining updates, we're talking strikes. Of course, it's not totally exhaustive because nothing like this can be, but it's incredibly exhaustive. So much good information is packed into this newsletter that he sends out every week. He didn't get to it last week, so this is actually something like the last two weeks in southern labor so there's a lot to get to um and i always uh i always love seeing alabama in the newsletter and alabama did show up in the newsletter this time and um and and it shows up more often than you might think alabama does uh so so that's always great so let's go ahead and get to it um in new organizing in the last two weeks 968 more workers across 33 Starbucks shops, including roasteries in New York and Seattle, filed for election, including stores in the South in San Antonio, Texas, Jacksonville, Florida, two stores in Tallahassee, Florida, Roanoke, Virginia, Midlothian, Virginia, and three stores in Richmond, Virginia, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. The South is showing up That's right. in the Starbucks campaign. That's, That's great. Amazing. 82 car haulers for Carvana. Car haulers for Carvana based in Blue Mound, Texas are organizing with Teamsters Local 745. Set, uh, 54 drivers for U.S. Foods out of Charlotte, North Carolina are organizing with Teamsters Local 71. 16 workers at BMR Janitorial in Austin, Texas, are organizing with ATU Local 1091. More Perfect Union reported on the BCTGM's efforts to organize over 1,000 workers at a Hershey's plant in Stewart's Draft, Virginia, who, like other food production workers uh, who've organized and struck over the last several months, they face grueling overtime and a disappearing weekend. Unfortunately, the workers pulled their petition due to a vicious anti-union campaign, including the firing of pro-union workers. Mm. Workers at the Alamo Draft House flagship location in Austin, Texas, are organizing with the IWW. How cool is that? Very cool. In very different Texas union organizing, active duty National Guardsmen are organizing with the Texas State Employees Union, CWA Local 6186. That's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, and, I, yeah, that's not something I would have ever uh, guessed. So, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I hope we get some more uh, details on that one. In election wins and losses, all seven electronic warfare instructors at the Jacksonville and Mayport, Florida Naval Stations voted to join the apparently independent AAAT Contract Instructors of Florida. 
39 workers at Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery in Nashville voted against becoming the first unionized whiskey makers in Tennessee, going 9-21 to 21 against joining UFCW Local 1995, which is unfortunate. Again, this was the result of a vicious anti-union campaign uh, where the, it more than 80% of the bargaining unit signed cards at the beginning of this campaign. Wow. And they were able to flip, the company was able to flip the votes, 9-21 to 21 against joining UFCW 1995. Just terrible, terrible news coming out of that. Uh, really unfortunate. Um, if you want to read more about the campaign, though, Kim Kelly wrote about it for The Nation. You can search... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Tennessee Whiskey, Kim Kelly, The Nation. It'll probably come up. I don't know the title of the article. Read it a while ago. Uh, in strikes and bargaining, the UMWA strikers at Warrior Met went to Washington a couple weeks ago with a Senate Budget Committee hearing highlighting how private equity has played a role in the nearly year-long strike of over a 1,000 metallurgical coal miners in Brookwood, Alabama. We did a deep dive on that last week. Shout out to Bernie for uh, using his chairmanship yes. to host that hearing. That's a, that's a good use of, of actually yeah. having a little bit of power. A couple dozen barbers on military bases in Virginia apparently won their strike, which started in July, against the military haircut contractor, which raised prices but lowered the barber's cut. The Barbers are members of the Laborers International Union of North America. Sixty school bus drivers in St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana, joined the ongoing rolling strike wave in that industry with a sick-out, hoping to win a raise. National negotiations between the steelworkers and several large oil companies covering 30,000 workers continue on a rolling 24-hour contract extension, having expired February the 1st. So normally what would happen is you would have the contract expire and then you would go on strike. But these, uh, but the, the bargaining committee or the international unions have decided to do a rolling 24-hour. So like day by day, the contract is, extend, is extending. So very, you know, kind of tedious, uh, tedious negotiations going on there. Those steelworkers rallied outside of Marathon's corporate headquarters in Finley, Ohio last week. The 600 workers at Beaumont, Texas, at one of the companies at the table, um, Exxon, are voting on Monday on a new agreement to end the company's lockout that started on May 1st of 2021. So we'll have Yeah, we've, we've been here in Beaumont, Texas uh, for week. quite yeah. a while. So, you know, really hope they get a fair contract after this long fight. AFGE Local 131 rallied with veterans outside of the Tuscaloosa, Alabama VA Medical Center in protest of poor working conditions. The ongoing MLB lockout looks increasingly likely to delay the start of the season and has already delayed the start of spring training games. Um, I think that we have seen a lot of support for the MLB players uh, in this fight um, so that's good. Good to hear. The owners make too much money, and a lot of the players make too little money. Louisville, Kentucky screwed up its bonus pay to city workers from the American Rescue Plan and now has to claw back around $200 from workers making 14 an hour. And the unions are pissed. As would, <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't be pissed? Right. And I've seen that personally where, you know, I'll never forget working with a custodian who apparently was slightly overpaid for a 
you know, a couple years. And payroll finally discovered this accident. And, of course, it's public funds. They are obligated by law to claw it back. But what they did to this poor lady was decide all at once, without any prior advance notice, oh, yeah, we've overpaid you for two years. We're going to take it. You know, what took 24 checks to do, we're going to take out all in one check. Uh, And this is a person who, you know, as a custodian, was not making enough uh, on this one job to even survive. So, Absolutely uh, insane. God, yeah, that, so that that story really, you know, resonates with me and brings up some memories and uh, really hope they're able to, to negotiate a way to do that as painless as possible. Yeah. With the new Teamsters leadership set to take office on March 22nd after winning in a landslide against the incumbent backed successor to the longtime president, James P. Hoffa, new leadership appointments are being announced of note is that the incoming president, Sean O'Brien, and incoming secretary-treasurer, Fred Zuckerman, both vocal uh, vocal proponents of a more aggressive stance towards the union's largest employer, UPS, will be co-leading the 2023 UPS contract negotiations. Also of interest is the appointment of two members of the Teamsters for a Democratic Union Steering Committee to top posts in the union, a new organizing director as well as heads of the warehouse, car hall, and freight division directors were named as well. Nice. Yes, very nice. Um, yeah, so that's it. That was That's what happened in the last, week, the last two weeks in Southern Labor. If you want to see what happened across the United States in the labor movement as it relates to working people, you have got to subscribe to whogetsthebird.substack.com. Very, Jonah does great work, and you can check out his reporting for Labor Notes as well. He's a staff writer for them, does a lot of good work. Um, so listeners will recall that a couple weeks ago I participated on a panel discussion organized by Southern Chapters of the Democratic Socialists of America to raise money for the striking coal miners. Listeners donated uh, during the panel, and the fundraiser is still up through the end of the month. They had a goal of 15000 and they have now passed it. Their fundraiser is currently sitting at just under $17,000. If you want to help them get to 18000 or 17000 before the end of the month, the link is in the show notes. Um, and uh, on that note, I got a chance to attend a an additional fundraiser that was held this week. Uh, and this one was... Um, we had, gosh, it was Jobs with jobs with Justice, uh, Southern Workers Assembly, uh, a few different labor unions, and a couple of other organizations all collaborated. Um, a friend of the show, Cooper Carraway, was the MC of the event. Uh, Braxton and Hayden Wright were interviewed, as well as uh, Vice President Larry Spencer. Um, yeah, it was, it was a great event. Our, our dear brother Lee Bain sent in a recording uh, for a little musical entertainment. And uh, I do not know how much money they raised other night. Uh, and in fact, it was the night we had tornadoes and, and bad storms. So it was kind of hard to, to stay stay with it the whole time. Uh, but from what I recall, I know Chicago Federation of Labor gave $5,000 while we wow. were sitting there listening. Um, and, and there were quite a, a lot of us in the comments, you know, just chipping in 10, 20 bucks where we could. So between the DSA fundraiser, uh, as well as this fundraiser just last week. Um, really great to see that, to see the solidarity. And uh, even those of us who, who don't have the money to contribute, you probably know someone who does. Uh, and that's where, you know, sharing the stuff, 
having conversations with your friends and family about these issues can make a difference because even if you don't have five bucks to spare, you might know someone who does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, in fact, might know someone who has a lot more than five dollars to spare. And you might not even realize it. But, uh, you know, it's hard not to listen to the story. Uh, you know, these stories being told by folks like Braxton and Hayden and, and the lives that have been shaped by the strike and have been shaped by the BS that led to this strike and, and the obscene working conditions. It's hard not to be moved by that. Yeah. And, and it's uh, really a testimony uh to the solidarity that is out there. However, you know, insufficient it may be, as small as we may be as a movement, um, we're still here. We're still doing the best we can. We're still out here raising money for folks, supporting strike funds, uh, and, and working on behalf of people we've never met, people who may not look like us or, or talk like us or, or live like us, uh, but they're our fellow working class brothers and sisters uh, and, and we know that an injury to one is an injury to all. So it's really it's inspiring. Uh, and something that Larry said in this, the one I attended this week, was how much it's really boosting the morale when the miners and their families see these kind of fundraisers and Zoom meetings and all these different organizations that they may have never even heard of that come out of the woodwork to, to chip in money, chip in supplies, just show solidarity publicly. Uh, I, I think that's uh, it's a big deal, and I, I have to imagine, and Jacob, you're closer to it than I am, but I'm, I'm going to guess that some folks have had their eyes opened in terms of who's on their side and who's not on their side. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. Um, Kim Kelly is closer to it than any of us, I believe, and she said that there are people who um, who were consistent Republican voters would have before when the strike began. She said described themselves to her as conservatives. So when the strike began, Kim Kelly started covering the strike. These uh, you know these coal miners and their families told her that you know. We appreciate what you're doing. We're conservative, but like you know, we appreciate this. And now she says that they would identify as socialists. So you know, and that's not to say all of them by any means no, or anything like not. that. But I think the point stands strong there. That again, whenever you're in a bind, you kind of figure out who your friends are and yeah. who they aren't. Exactly. And these folks uh, have had zero help from anyone in the Republican Party. Right. Not a whole lot from the Democratic Party. Um, you know, and and absolutely nothing from the people who Isn't are supposed that, to represent them in yeah. their districts. Isn't that crazy? Like, I know that the Tuscaloosa Democrats, I believe they have donated some amount. And, of course, Chris England has And the state consistent. party has, you know, I'll, I'll give but, credit to the state party. Um, Wade Perry's the executive director down there. They have been... You know, doing some consistent messaging about the strike and, and like you said, I think Chris England being the chair of the state party and also being right there in the neighborhood, that mm-hmm. seems to have helped. Um, but, you all, but you know, in terms of, I guess, Democrats more broadly, it, it hasn't been as huge of an issue. Well, but it, even those people that are supporting the strike, like, I think that the, I mean, I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. Totally speculating here. But I think that that $15,000 is more 
from from socialists across the country is more than they've gotten from Democrats. Like, isn't that bonkers? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I mean, and I, they, they certainly <clears throat> haven't publicized it. Like, right. they have not put it out. If they have made, and I'd love to hear about it. Like, if you know, if you're listening, uh, you know, Hayden regularly listens to the show. Like, if you're listening and you're like. Oh no! Actually, the Alabama Democratic Party donated twenty thousand or thirty thousand to us. Or, um, well, listen, or, I know, mean, like, let us know. But right. as far as I know, like socialists have raised more money for <laughs> for them than yeah. Democrats and Republicans. Well, I mean, Democrats in Alabama have a hard time raising money for themselves, or even no, putting they, candidates on the well, ballot. Dude. I mean, th- they have uh, a problem putting candidates yeah. on the ballot, but they've got like. They're spending. Uh, they spent like a million dollars yeah. last year. Fair enough. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't know where they're getting the money from, but they spent like a million dollars last year in a non-election. Like I don't even know what they. Uh, somebody said Tabitha uh, Tabitha Isner is somebody who's kind of involved in that world, and she said. Like so she said that, like that, that the the party spent like a million dollars last year, and somebody was like, "On what?" And she said, uh, "Over a dozen highly paid staffers." And so you know, I don't know. Well, we'll see how effective those highly paid staffers are. Yeah, well, and uh, you know, not to belabor the point, but at the end of the day, this is an important. This is an important part of Alabama's history that we're we're mm-hmm. in right now. As you brought up, it's the longest strike in our history now. Um, yeah, I, I mean, over a billion dollars siphoned out of our state, out of these neighborhoods, off to Wall Street. Yeah. It's obscene, and you know, regardless of how you may feel about the coal industry, um, you know, I, I, I remember one day we were talking about the strike, and I had on my shirt that was from Gasp, the Greater the Greater Alliance, uh, Birmingham Alliance to Stop Pollution, and and. One of the great organizations out here in the state doing good work against mm-hmm. uh, pollution and climate change. It is possible to to be against climate change and believe that fossil fuels have to be a thing of the past if we're going to move forward as a species, while at the same time supporting these brothers and sisters down there. It's you know it's not exclusive, and I have you and I have talked about this. We've seen folks like online and uh, and some of the you know. I guess liberal types who more or less uh, don't want to support the miners because of coal or don't want to support the miners because they think they're all a bunch of, you know, uh, white Trump supporters, which is they're not all white. They're not all Trump supporters. Forty percent of the people on strike are black. Absolutely. It's a very diverse union. And you know what? I, I don't care who they voted for that's not going to make a difference into whether or not i think they deserve to win this strike and they deserve to live in dignity and i'll chip in a few bucks that i have to help them do that yeah don't care what what they believe absolutely absolutely um so last week we spoke to two of the seven starbucks workers who were fired in retaliation for their union support in memphis Members of the media came into the store before it had closed. They requested an interview, and the workers spoke to them. Uh, Starbucks says that they were fired for violating safety and security policies, namely workers being in the store off the clock and having unauthorized persons in the building after close, despite the fact that store policy also says you are not even allowed to tell a customer that you're closed until 10 minutes after. 
So these members of the media came in before the store closed, requested an interview, and the people spoke to them. We played a clip from a former Starbucks manager who testified to the, pa- to the fact that these policies cited by Starbucks as their official rationale for the firings were routinely broken and that if they were consistently enforced uh, this harshly, they would not have any staff. Okay, so seems clear those firings were retaliatory in nature. Well, Starbucks has not stopped their retaliatory behavior. Last week, Cassie Fleischer, a Starbucks worker in Buffalo, announced she had not been scheduled nor allowed to pick up shifts after she took a new job and requested a reduction in fifteen uh, to 15 hours per week. Okay, so the timeline that she says, that she states, is she had been working prior to the holiday season 37 to 39 hours a week. She was then reduced to uh, uh, 30 hours a week, 29 to 30 hours a week. And so because of that reduction in hours, she, of course, had a reduction in pay. She had to get a new job. She got a full-time job, and she requested uh, a further reduction in hours. So this was initially prompted, according to her account, by Starbucks, and, and, and then she requested a reduction to 15 hours per week. She says, uh, uh, you know, so that, that's, how, that's how that worked. And she says that the policy has always been that you can be a worker at Starbucks as long as you are willing to work 12 hours a week. But now they've implemented a policy mandating at least 20 hours a week and four days of availability. 20 hours a week and four days of availability. You have to be willing to work that much. That's not a guarantee that you will work that much, but Starbucks, you have to be basically on call for that amount of time, Starbucks is saying. Now, what Starbucks says, they are saying that she had not been fired despite the fact that she was not scheduled to work for two weeks and she was not allowed to pick up a shift And they also disputed that Starbucks cut her hours recently, leading to a second job loss. Or leading to a second job, okay? So remember, she said, I got a second job because Starbucks cut my hours. And then they fired me. Starbucks is saying she's not fired, and they're disputing the fact that Starbucks cut her hours. So they're disputing both both of the factual claims there. But just yesterday... And, I, and this came out as I was writing my show prep. Yesterday, More Perfect Union released leaked audio from Cassie's firing where her manager said she would be termed out, which is Starbucks speak for fired. She also said, quote, you're not coming back. Okay, so like, if I leave that situation as a worker, my impression is that I'm fired. And I think that's a reasonable impression. And then having that, uh, and then having that impression, or, or that impression would be validated by the fact that I'm not on the schedule for two weeks, and I'm not allowed to pick up shifts. Right. Okay. That. So that that seems like she took away from that the reasonable thing. The manager also acknowledged in the audio that Fleischer's situation was triggered by a cutback in hours available to her. Wow. So, like, it's a good thing that she was recording because it's not now just he said, she said. It's uh, Cassie Fleischer says, Starbucks denies, Cassie Fleischer has the audio to back uh, I'm going to take this moment to interject and recommend if you don't know how to do recordings using your phone, 
You should learn. Uh, you should learn. Uh, and when you are called into meetings with management, it is not a bad idea to record. Right. Uh, you do, in the state of Alabama, this is a one-party state. In, in other words, you as the person recording is the one party who can consent to it. Uh, the other party does not have to consent. So if you are called into a meeting, at least in the state of Alabama and certainly in other places, you call into a meeting with management. It looks to be disciplinary. It looks to be investigatory. You don't have a union rep available, or even if you do have your union rep available, uh, you can certainly press record on your phone in your pocket mm-hmm. uh, to have some audio evidence. Um, exactly. And and you might not. If I I always advised my members, I wouldn't tell them or let on that you're doing this. Uh, because that's a whole set, you know, you're opening a can of worms if they know in advance. Uh, and you don't go brag about it. You know, don't mm-hmm. don't tell everybody in the break room, oh, yeah, I was recording, you know, boss such and such. Uh, but but you've here's, got it if you need it. You've got it if you need it, and, and you never know when it could come in handy. And this is a situation where uh, the company is trying to lie, and, uh, you know, thank goodness she's got some evidence. Right. Yeah, so... Um when we first when when this started first coming out about the Memphis workers, we retweeted and shared some of the stuff. And amazingly, uh, the director of crisis communications for Starbucks reached out to the show. We talked about that when we spoke to the Starbucks workers in Memphis, um, and uh, you know was wanting to quote unquote correct the record or whatever. He refused to tell us how much he made, and um, I've also subsequently learned that he is the director of equity and inclusion at Starbucks. So we love woke union busting. <sighs> That's so much fun. Um, <laughs> but so so anyway, so I have this communication channel now with with the director of crisis communications at Starbucks. Um, and and so I just I think it's fun just to see what he's going to say. And so I sent him more perfect unions uh, reporting on this. And I, I asked him if he had any comment. And amazingly, like we we have the even his own even his own reply is contradictory. But but, you know. We've got Cassie's statements, and we've got the fact that Cassie's statements are backed up by the recording. But he says, he replied, I think the below is consistent with what's in the recording. Cassie's lack of availability doesn't allow for her to be able to work at the store. She hasn't been fired. What? What? If her, What do you mean? What, what are you talking about? It, it's not consistent with the recording. But also, if her availability doesn't allow her to be able to work at the store, then she's fired. Right? Then she's fired. Yeah. Don't believe your lying ears. <laughs> I know you just listened to that. And it, it's the opposite <laughs> of what I just told you, but it's actually the same. And uh, you would know that if you trusted me because I am an equity officer. I right. <laughs> have all these fancy degrees and, uh, you know, yeah. clearly – I, right. you know, what Your he, role. yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> you can't just listen to the recording and assume it really says what you just heard. No, no. You got to listen to what management spends on it. Yeah. It's wild. It it really is. Um, it's always interesting to see like how narcissistic uh, management can be mm-hmm. where yeah, you you catch them red-handed, and they still and will just like nah. will just go to the mats. That no, you didn't see what you just right. saw. No, right. you didn't hear what you just heard. It's yeah, it, yeah it's always uh, interesting, and that you know, and that's why the 
and the reason that's so you know frustrating is the power dynamics at play there. Right. If it's just you and a buddy, and you know your buddy's BSing you, and you're over a beer or whatever, it's fine, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you, we all know those people who are full of crap. Yeah. Um, but where it's, it's it's different though when these people have the power right. to take your livelihood away right. or to dramatically affect. Your conditions at work, which is where most of us spend our time, is either working or sleeping to get back to work. So yeah, uh, Starbucks. Just, hmm. Yeah, Starbucks has said that they work with their employees to try to accommodate st- schedules, but that this is not guaranteed. Every store is different, has different needs. Blah 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 blah. But uh, I mean, this is. I mean, we're adults here. This is clearly retaliation. If Starbucks clearly. wanted to make it work. They could. Yeah. And she also said, I can make myself available for longer on Saturdays. I could work an eight-hour shift on Saturdays. And in the recording, the manager said that she doesn't like giving eight-hour shifts because she has to give a lunch break. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Not a lunch break. Uh, Oh, my. I worked at a restaurant for years, for years, having an availability of one day a week. Uh, for the majority of the year because I had classes, right? I had a, I had a really good relationship with my general manager. Um, now, the owner of the store, totally different totally different thing. He lived in a different state, never, never worked in our store ever, hardly, and he had a second home in Florida with a jet ski. Okay, so piece of crap, that guy, right? And he also called – it super side tangent, but when I left, they didn't send me my, um, my, my tax – files that your w-2 I yeah they didn't send me my w-2 and so i asked and so i repeatedly sent requests to the company uh saying like hey can you can you give me my w-2 can you give me my w-2 and so finally i got fed up with it i said if, if you if i don't get my w-2 in the next two days then i'm reporting this company to the irs department of labor or whatever and he emails me finally after all this effort he emails me saying um you're a condescending and pretentious and arrogant dick uh i'll give you your w-2 when you apologize and i'm like uh what <laughs> what no i'm not apologizing screw you man give yeah me my w-2 <laughs> all and right so, thanks and, for your email i'll forward that to my attorney yeah jackass. and so um it, the next day i had my w-2 is the ending of that story. yeah um but, <laughs> but, but you know so anyway my general manager was great he, he, he was really good with me and, i know and, you brought that up as a side tangent but that is a real problem that so many of us have faced when you separate from an employer whether it's by your choice or their choice mm-hmm. how many times do folks get the runaround about getting their w-2s right. about getting statements in terms of uh, health insurance, re- any retirement benefits you may have had. Right. Uh, that is a very, very common experience I've found. Um, you know, unless you're one of those rare people who like is at the same job your whole working career. Mm-hmm. Most of us have dealt with crap like that, and it's hardly ever talked about. I mean, that's not something yeah. you ever hear in the media. Right. But that is just one of the many little ways that they can screw with you. Yeah. And more or less get away with it. Yeah. So, you know, like, look, they could obviously make it work if they wanted. Like I said, I yeah. worked at this restaurant for years, for years, and I uh, worked on Saturdays. That was my only availability, 
and I always worked a double on Saturdays. I worked like 12, 14 hour days. Sometimes I didn't get a lunch. Sometimes I didn't get a break, but whatever, you know. Um, so I, I did that and they worked with me. And then um, during the summers when I wanted to make more money, they would schedule me for like 50, 60 hours a week. OK, like I know that's kind of like an extreme thing, but like. And and that's not even I'm not even saying that Starbucks should do that, but um, it's not uncommon in the industry. It's not uncommon at all, especially in this industry. It, especially if you want to work with your employee. If you want it, you can make anything happen if you if you're willing to actually work with your employee. Yeah. Um. So they they are right about when Starbucks said that none of this is guaranteed. They're right about that, generally speaking, that nothing is guaranteed, and even the things that the boss says are not guaranteed because they can change the terms of employment at any time for any reason or for no reason at all. Like, you have no guarantee of consistency in a job where you don't have a union contract, and that's why it is so important for every worker to be in in a union, for you to get a union contract, because if you don't have that, you have zero expectation uh, or zero right to consistency. I did say generally, though, because unfortunately for Starbucks, under U.S. federal law, you cannot implement a rule specifically to dissuade workers from unionizing. So Starbucks Workers United has fired a ULP, um... They've also filed a ULP on behalf of the seven workers fired in Memphis. And in response to the ULP filed on behalf of the Memphis seven, Starbucks said that they looked forward to being vindicated. But it's worth noting that Starbucks does not have a good track record when it comes to ULPs. In July of 2021, the NLRB ruled in the case of two retaliatory firings of Philadelphia baristas in 2019 that the company engaged in in illegal activity and must offer reinstatement and make them whole. Um, I did say that's unfortunate for Starbucks. Fortunately for Starbucks, though, our system is broken, and it took two years to get this obvious ruling through. And uh, and even the decision making them whole, quote-unquote, that only means back pay minus whatever wages they earned in the interim. So likely the back pay that, that Starbucks had to give them was zero or close to it. And also likely they already had other jobs and they did not want to take the job back at, Phil, at a Philadelphia Starbucks. And so, you know, that's really... Uh, so, so, you know, we've got a couple couple things in tension there we've got the law that clearly states our rights and clearly says starbucks is in the wrong but also the enforcement of the law is bogus in this country starbucks workers are not deterred though yesterday the third starbucks union in the country won their election by a landslide 25 to 3 only three workers in mesa arizona voted against unionization amazing Amazing. So, um, next up, I wanted to talk about wage theft uh, and some civil asset forfeiture stuff because this is a clip that I've been sitting on for a long time, maybe three weeks? I think I've had this in my notes for three weeks, but I want to get to it because it's really good. Um, Civil asset forfeiture is the process by which cops take your stuff without having had to be found guilty or even charged with a crime. It's a widespread practice, and cops uh, say that it's important in fighting crime, despite the fact that in states that don't allow this anymore, they have not seen 
uh, crime rate increases following the outlawing of civil asset forfeiture. The implication is also that it is used to take down kingpins, but more than half of forfeitures are less than $1,300. In 2018 alone, 42 states, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. Department of Justice and the Treasury forfeited over $3 billion, which is nearly as much as all burglary that year. In 2015, cops took more people than took, uh, uh, took more from people than burglars did. Some caveats on both sides, though, are that burglary does not include larceny, theft, or robbery, quote-unquote, which are all different things, and that even in 2015, when you add them all together, uh, the theft crimes are approximately double the civil asset forfeiture from that year. Uh, However, not all states and municipalities report their civil asset forfeiture data. So the numbers that we have are likely a severe undercount. Um, Oh, I I feel very certain it is. I mean... Um, I think I can't speak to nationwide, but I know like just in terms of an anecdotal thing, uh, most everyone I've ever known who ever has been arrested, um, you know, whether it be DUI or, or whatever they were arrested for, whatever cash was in their wallet or in their car at the time is almost always, I, I can't think of anyone really I've ever met who didn't have this experience where the cash that they had on their person when they were arrested disappeared and it was not returned to them whenever they bailed out, whether that was a couple hours later or 24 hours later or, you know, however long that was. And I can't imagine that that is, you know, an isolated event, uh, especially when you start looking at these numbers and you think about how many people are pulled over and then they're arrested, so they're taken off to jail. Um, what did they have in their wallet? What did they have in their car? How much of that will ever make its way back to the to the person? Because being arrested, by definition, you haven't been convicted. You are legally an innocent person. You just had all your stuff jacked. And if the charges are dismissed down the road, or perhaps you take it to trial and you are found not guilty... Are you ever going to get your stuff back? Are you ever going to get your money back? Um, you know, not to mention uh, how many times they may just completely demolish your property. Right. Not, you know, so of course we're talking about them taking it, but they also, it's not, you know, unheard of for them to quote unquote suspect drugs in your vehicle and rip the thing to shreds just about. Uh, it's not unusual or like unheard of necessarily. I'll say unheard of. You know, I wouldn't say it's common necessarily, but it, it certainly happens where uh, folks uh, have their homes raided, mm-hmm. and you know the doors are busted down, the windows are broken, any number of things. Uh, that's before they've been convicted of any crime, and it we've we've seen cases where the wrong house gets raided. They meant to get somebody else, and they got you instead. Now they just blew up your door, broke your windows. For what? You ever going to get any justice out of that? Accountability? Uh, you know, Representative Treadway loved that word, accountability. we got to hold folks accountable. What about this? What about right. wage theft from bosses and civil asset mm-hmm. forfeiture from law enforcement between the two they are fleecing people they are yeah. fleecing 
ordinary, everyday working class folks who don't have anything to be fleeced, really. We right. don't have the extra. We can't afford this. And yet they're doing it. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and, and the... the um People never get their stuff back from civil asset forfeiture. Very, very rarely. Because, like I said, more than half of things that are stolen in civil asset forfeiture are less than $1,300. It costs about $3,000 to get a lawyer. And because it's civil asset forfeiture and not criminal asset forfeiture, you do not have a right to an attorney. You don't have a a right to an attorney. So you would have to personally uh, get, get an attorney. And, and, and most people can't do that, and so they just lose their stuff, which is very, very bad. So despite this – oh, yeah, and, and in other uh, powerful people picking the pockets of worker news, wage theft is consistently, even without civil asset forfeiture, just wage theft alone is consistently higher than all forms of property crime combined. Okay, So when we, when we talk about combined bosses and cops stealing from people – it's way more, way more than all property crime. Despite that, though, Al Sharpton came on MSNBC to talk about some guy stealing steaks in New York. Let's play that clip. It is true that people are just walking in and walking out with it. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, you go to a local pharmacy, Dwayne Reed or, or Rite Aid, any of them, and you've got to get someone to help yeah. assist you. I mean, they, they have the little button there. Yep. You hit the buzzer, and the guy comes over and unlocks your toothpaste. Yes. I mean, we're talking about basic <laughs> stuff. That's what they said. What did I miss that we now have to lock up toothpaste? Yeah, and well, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious, Rev, really quickly. I mean, Eric Adams said he's going to do his best to fix this. I'm just curious. I mean, he's got a governor who's saying, well, I don't know that we want to give the judges any power to make decisions on whether they've seen the same bad guy in front of them like 12 times in the past week. And then you've got a DA. I know you talk to the DA. The DA's going, oh, we don't want to punish anybody unless it's like really bad. You know, so, yeah, you can steal whatever you want to steal. And, yeah, we won't do any jail time. And then you've got, you know, then you've got a woke uh, city council. I'm just curious. Is Eric Adams going to be able to do anything while he's obviously surrounded by elected officials who want New York to remain chaotic? Well, I think he's got a challenge there because there is a debate in the criminal justice system and there are those that are concerned, including me, about overloading the system and the jails with petty crime. But at the same time, you cannot have a culture where people are just at random, just robbing and stealing and is out of control and is put on the front page of newspapers, which only encourages others to do it. Uh, In fairness to Eric, he's only been mayor five weeks but in, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but even as I'm fair to him, Eric, they're locking up my toothpaste. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, so put it on the papers entices people to do it more. But y'all wasting segments doing it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just. It's, I mean, this is supposed to be the liberal network, right? I mean, this is yeah. supposed to be the bleeding hearts. This is supposed to be the woke, the woke network. I mean, give me a break. What about a culture? Where cops and bosses can steal from workers without even having to so much as appear before a judge? What about a culture where the media doesn't 
where the media doesn't report on the theft from workers by their bosses. That's the culture that we have now, and we shouldn't have that. There are almost no resources devoted to fighting wage theft while we spend dollars and time talking about petty shoplifting. Like, cry me a river, okay? Walgreens has been in the news about, you know, whatever, shoplifting. They had $2.3 billion in profits last year after all that shoplifting, okay? So cry me a river. I'm not saying, like, don't shoplift. Okay, it's I don't think it's good for society that people shoplift, but that's not the worst thing happening with regards to theft in this country. Right. You know what makes me angrier than someone stealing? It's when someone doesn't have any food to eat yeah. and, and therefore decides that stealing the food is about the best idea they can come up with. Now, that's obscene, not the stealing Right. But the fact that people are hungry and suffering, um, you probably saw this other day where a police department was advertising where they like busted up a, a theft mm. ring of, of diapers. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and that's the thing. People, you know, stealing diapers and formula steaks, uh, gain laundry detergent. Um, you know, I agree. You're right. It's not a, a good thing if that's just like rampant or, or happening uh, all over the place. But what's worse is a system where people are brought to that point mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, either because they're that desperate or because they figured out a hustle. And this is the hustle that they have, uh, you know, engaging in black market deals with, with petty grocery items. Um well, hell, maybe if they had access to a decent union job, paying a living wage and health care and retirement pension, they they wouldn't be so inclined to embark right. on this hustle. And um, even if we're just like just even like if we're supposed to be like, OK, let's say that we do care about theft. OK, like this is top of our priorities. We want to eliminate like if that is actually your mindset, a uh, uh, a clear-headed and neutral analysis of the facts would say that we should be prioritizing the theft of bosses from workers because right. that's what happens the most. When we're talking about, we're not even talking about just shoplifting. We're talking about all property crime combined. I'm talking about bank robberies. I'm talking about uh, stealing cars. I'm talking about all of it, robbing, uh, robbing pawn shops. I'm talking about people stealing family heirlooms. When you combine all of that together, bosses steal more money from workers than all of that. Yeah. All of it. Okay? So if we actually care about ensuring that, the, that property rights in this system as it is set up, you know, we're not even talking about where I think I think workers the value that they created I think that's being stolen from them but we're not even talking about that we're not even getting to that we're just talking about the system as it exists the regime of property rights as it exists bosses steal more from workers so if we want to enforce the current regime we should we should still be looking at bosses. I mean, isn't yeah. that amazing? This is a property rights regime that has been set up by the bosses. Like this was created by and for bosses. 
the system of property rights that we have in this country, and they still violate it more often than working people do. Isn't that amazing? Like, yeah. Isn't I, that crazy? I, I would love to know how many folks working for Walgreens or CVS or these other you know stores that have been in the news, so, you know, that have been targeted by allegedly targeted by these sophisticated shoplifting rings. Okay, how many other workers have been screwed out of overtime pay they should have gotten? Yeah. How many other workers had to uh, work off the clock because they were coerced by their management or pressured in, you know, by their management to, well, you know, I need you to. They've already clocked out, and they have to come back right. in and finish up some things, or, or they got in there earlier before they're supposed to be there. They're off the clock doing labor. How many times have they been screwed out of insurance? Uh, how many times have they had hours that they worked that mysteriously didn't show up on their mm-hmm. paycheck? And on and on and on. Um, you know, you and I both see saw these kind of things in our time in the service industry. It's. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to cry any tears because some people are stealing steaks or stealing shampoo or whatever the hell they're doing. Uh, not as long as our brothers and sisters who are working in these places are being victimized and exploited by these very companies who are <clears throat> wanting us to cry a river. Yep. So anyways, when you think of thief, you probably think of some masked poor person. But you would be more accurate if you thought of a boss or a cop. Absolutely. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't look like a uh, <laughs> the burglar uh, that you see on TV. Yeah. He looks like a uh, suit and tie. Probably. He probably looks right. like this Joker you're talking to at Starbucks, or he looks like Tommy right. Tuberville's dumbass. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about. We've got two more things that, that we want to get to. We had some other stuff. Uh, we wanted to talk about child poverty, uh, the Hershey's campaign losing, um, break down some of that. Uh, we're going to save that for next week if we can get to it. But I do, since this is such timely news, I do want to get to the RWDSU filing ULPs and I want to answer our listener voicemail from last week. So we're going to get to those two right now. Um, Starbucks is not the only company breaking the law and illegally interfering with their workers' right to form a union. Amazon is as well. The union has filed three charges against Amazon. RWDSU, uh, the union that the workers at Amazon have decided that they want to affiliate with. RWDSU, the retail, wholesale, and department store union, have filed three charges against Amazon. From their press release, the first two are... Uh, a ULP for an unfair labor practice, that's what ULP stands for, for the removal of union literature from break rooms. They say that uh, Bamazon Union Worker Organizing Committee members have been posting pro-union literature in non-work areas on non-working time alongside anti-union postings from the company. The Bamazon Union flyers were removed by Amazon in violation of the law. The law states that in neutral areas where there is the ability to post for workers to post things or where the company is posting anti-union propaganda, the workers have the right to post their own flyers, their own literature. That's the law. Amazon is violating it. They also filed a ULP, an unfair labor practice against Amazon, for the promulgating of a new rule. 
you'll remember that that tracks with what the Starbucks workers united with what they filed uh, their ULP for because of the new rule about how how much you have to be available to work for Starbucks to work there. At Amazon, they promulgated a new rule limiting workers' access inside the facility for any time for any time period greater than 30 minutes prior to and after their shift. This rule is not in their policy handbook and violates status quo under the law. So what is status quo? Status quo says that you can't, like, the, the, the law is basically that you cannot, in response to workers organizing in your facility, you cannot create out of whole cloth a new rule or begin implementing a rule that had not been implemented before in response to workers organizing. Amazon in Bessemer has created a new rule out of whole cloth that says that workers cannot stay inside the facility for any time period greater than 30 minutes prior to and after their shift. That is obviously, it's not in their handbook, so this new rule is obviously aimed at hampering worker conversations, at hampering union organizing. It's illegal. The third is a bit different. It's very interesting. They call this one potentially precedent-setting. They are challenging the legal right of employers to hold captive audience meetings at all. Section 7 from their press release, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act guarantees employees, quote, the right to self-organization, to form, join, or assist labor organizations, to bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing, and to engage in other concerted activities for the purpose of collective bargaining or other mutual aid or protection, as well as, quote, the, as well as the right to, quote, refrain from any or all such activities. When workers are forced to attend required meetings, the union says, during work hours to hear the company's anti-union propaganda that violates their right to refrain from any and all such activities. I think that's a good argument. This unfair labor practice charges that Amazon is in violation of Section 8A1 and or 8A3 of the National Labor Relations Act and seeks to challenge the current yet often challenged case law precedent which has for too long allowed employers to compel attendance to anti-union meetings. These aptly named captive audience meetings are coercive, and workers should have the right, as is already protected under the law in Section 8, to not engage in them. The union can't force workers to attend union meetings because of the law. They have the right to refrain from activities like that. They should also have the right to refrain from activities that are uh, uh, against the union from the company. The ULP charge seeks to remedy via review of this law by the newly seated National Labor Relations Board. They do this following a memorandum from the NLRB General Counsel requesting workers pursue cases like this. Uh, so we are hopeful that, that this will win. And if it does win, that's going to be huge because so many workers I spent the last week, I took off work last week and spent all last week knocking on doors of Amazon workers. And there are so many of these people. I mean, not so many. The, the workers have been able to reach most of the people by now. But there are people 
who the union, who the workers have not been able to talk to about the union. And you could, I could tell in my conversations with some of these people that they had only heard the company side of the argument and they took it as gospel, basically. And so they asked me questions that were clearly informed by anti-union propaganda from the company. And so I either told them how and why it's wrong or I recontextualized it to make sure that they have the full context of what Amazon is saying. And every time I did that, they said, wow, Amazon didn't tell us that. That doesn't sound so bad. Wow, they didn't tell us that part. Oh, I didn't know that. Because in these mandatory anti-union captive audience meetings, they're not telling workers the full truth. They're not giving them the full context of everything that they're talking about. They are only spouting one like they're only spouting the company line with everything else taken from it and so i was talking to a worker last week who asked me how they how how to talk to people who have been informed by this stuff this kind of stuff and you know i i said that we do have one advantage on our side which is that all we have to do is tell the truth all that we've got to do is tell the truth that's right and the company doesn't have that advantage. So, um, Let's get to our voicemail, and then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, Adam, let's play that voicemail that we got last week. Hey, Adam and Jacob. My name's Austin, and I've been uh, living in Huntsville for a little over four years now and spent a couple years uh, working at one of the bigger breweries in town and since moved on from that job. But during my time there, I... I always hoped uh, I, I learned about the the concept of uh, an employee-owned workplace, and I always hoped that that might be something that we we may have been able to do while I was there, and it didn't work out. But I, but I've got some friends that still work there, and anyway, I just wanted to ask your opinion on uh, the difference, uh, maybe some of the pros and cons between um, using, unionizing a workplace versus pushing for a employee owned workplace and uh i really appreciate what you do and uh, i hope to uh hope to hear back from you thanks bye i'm so glad that we got a message along those lines because something uh, i plan to talk to you about after the show wraps is uh really getting some some guests who can shed light on this exact issue in terms mm -hmm. of different models of employee ownership um you know, I, I think you're you agree with me, and I know David. Uh, big, we're big fans of worker-owned co-ops. I think mm -hmm. uh, cooperatives, and, and you know, I think are really a way to build the kind of economy we want inside the the current system. Um, that you know, and so someone I would recommend uh, is Richard Wolf. Uh, Probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with him, but if you're not, he's a great economist, and uh, he has a show called Economic Update. He has a, uh, a website and kind of organization, Democracy at Work. Uh, so check out Democracy at Work. You can find um, – you know that will kind of get you started down the rabbit hole of worker-owned co-ops um, because I think there's so much potential there, and the more that we as working people can pull our resources – and dis basically like 
pull the plug out from the the system as a whole. The more we can work together and not have to rely on capitalists or governments mm -hmm. to survive, to thrive, I think that is really the way of the future. Um, that said, uh, he Austin touched on an interesting dynamic here in terms of unionizing versus uh, you know worker ownership. Uh, there are different degrees of worker ownership, and some is more legit than others. Some mm -hmm. is more or less like, oh, well, you get a you get a little bit of stock options in the company, so therefore right. we're employee owned, even though you don't have a damn say so at all about how right. uh, the operations are or the investments of the company. It's you know kind of an on paper uh, type of thing. Um, so you know, I think it's easy. Some companies are really just as they have leaned into the talk on diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, some mm -hmm. companies have leaned into that, the, the employee ownership as just a, you know, just PR. It's just mm -hmm. a, to slap a nice uh, shiny coat of paint on the same kind of stupid company that, <laughs> that right. they always had and that everybody else in their industry has. So I think there's a lot of danger there. Uh, and uh, I would have also seen um and a friend of mine uh spent some time up in vermont and has you know helped me learn about um some of the issues there where you have these co-ops who are employing people and then screwing over the employees right mm -hmm. so there there sometimes are potentials for tension between the co-ops who are and the folks who are owners of the cooperative mm -hmm. uh, versus folks who are working for the cooperative who may or may not, for various reasons, be considered co-op owners. Right. Or maybe they are, but they're outnumbered. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's enough folks who don't actually do any labor there uh, to kind of outvote them. Uh, and, and so you've seen – you know what should be democratic cooperative institutions uh, engaging in you know nefarious labor practices themselves. Right. Um, now, and all that is before you even get to the big picture of if, if you're still operating an enterprise in a market economy and ultimately to produce profit. You know, how, you, are you essentially like exploiting yourselves, right? Are you like extracting your own surplus value from your labor uh, and, and still engaging in all the things that come with engaging in the marketplace? Um, you know, I think I think we can be aware of those things while also recognizing uh, still the many benefits that come with it. So right. uh, in terms of what should you pick, uh, I think those are – it, that really would just be a really a case by case uh, kind of basis, and I think there's nothing stopping some aspect of both. Really, I mean, why not unionize with the goal of eventually right. taking over the company? Or if it looks like for whatever reason you're sort of closer down that role road, um, you know, push on the employee ownership side to recognize a union and enshrine mm -hmm. uh, collective bargaining agreements. You know, I think the two can work hand in hand, really. Right. Um, and, you know, that's why something I'm interested in and, and hopefully we'll uh, have some more content on the show so we can learn more about these two paths and how they can mm -hmm. relate to each other, how they can build off each other and how ultimately in the in, in the longer view, we as uh, working class people 
can start to put our resources there. Because wouldn't it be nice if, like, all of your shopping, all of your uh, consumption, uh, quote-unquote, could really be funneled into enterprises that were either union shops or co-ops or some combination of the two? I think building that economy – I think Richard Wolff maybe speaks of it as uh, the solidarity economy. Um, And I know he had a great interview a while back, um, this uh, Humboldt. Institute, I believe. Um, Mm. Some folks affiliated with the Green Party working with indigenous tribes up in the Northwest, uh, building a a whole community around cooperatives and uh, worker ownership. So there's a lot of really exciting stuff out there. It's not talked about a lot. And so it's and I think it's still relatively new in some ways and still relatively small in other ways. But then there's there's stuff that's been around our communities for a long, long time. Talk to any farmer. They they know about a co-op. Um, so I, I, I just, I'm glad to get a voicemail on that subject. It's mm-hmm. just a good reminder that um, we need to dive deeper into that yeah. uh, that field and get some, some experts and come on and educate us about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, what should you do, unionize or, or do a worker co-op? I mean, you know, like – the so becoming a, you know, obviously the devil is in the details when you're talking mm-hmm. about worker co-ops. Like you said, there some some versions are better than others. But assuming that we're talking about a truly democratic and a truly worker-owned enterprise where workers own and workers run the business, um, if you're talking about converting a current business to a worker-owned co-op, the hitch that you're going to find there is that you've got to get the boss to agree to it. Right. <laughs> right. And so you don't, and so that like, you know, whatever, more, more power to you and more power to the person who owns the enterprise. If you can actually get the boss to cede his control, like if you have that sort of personal leverage and you feel that the person individually is 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 that type of person that he would relinquish his control and ownership in the enterprise that would be great and i think adam and i would both love to see that because as opposed and to get his, in on it hell yeah, we yeah. i mean i i'm very much interested and i think i speak for right. for most of us in any way affiliated with this show that we would all be uh excited to see uh more democratic worker-owned cooperative type shops, enterprises, industries, whatever you want to call it, anything moving in that direction here in North Alabama or the Tennessee Valley, I think would be uh, fantastic and, and yeah. would love to collaborate on that. Right. But, but you know, like, like I said, uh, the hitch there is that for worker ownership, you have to get the current ownership to concede. Yeah. You do not have to have the boss's permission to unionize. And in fact, in almost every instance, you will not have right. the boss's <laughs> permission. And 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 so, you know, it, it we see how even progressive companies, quote unquote, and organizations fight against even unionization, which is not worker ownership. So I would uh, I would feel pretty confident betting my money that whatever brewery you worked at or your friends work at currently, the boss will not concede to turning it into a worker co-op, and they would oppose any unionization effort. But 
The good thing about unionization is that you don't need their permission. All you need is the solidarity of your sisters and brothers on the job. And then once you get, once you unionize and you start working on your contract, one of the things that you can do, which in the union, in the labor movement, we don't talk enough about, I don't think, is you can put into your contract that any sort of ownership change has to give the workers the first right of refusal. Meaning that if the owner, and we see this all the time, that bosses go bankrupt, bosses want to sell their company to a bigger corporation, whatever, you know, we see it all the time, and they don't even have to consult their workers on it, much less tell their workers, like, oh, hey, would you be interested in buying this? enterprise at market rate like would you be interested in it? they don't have to consult them on it they don't have to offer it to them they don't have to do any of that and it, you could because you can put anything in a contract you can put anything in a contract and so you could as a union as as your sisters and brothers on the job you could fight for that to be in your contract and say look boss man if you ever are interested in changing the ownership if you're ever interested in going bankrupt you have to say to us, the union, to us, the workers, you can buy it if you want. You can buy the the business if you want. Um, so that is something. What what would be better? Full worker ownership and control. I think that would obviously be preferable. But what is more achievable and what can actually lead to the former? I think is unionization. Yeah, so and, those and are some of my thoughts. On I'm that. real. I'm so glad you mentioned the right of first refusal. I was going to bring that up myself. Um, and. Back a couple years back, uh, you know, when we saw Jeremy Cor- Corbyn and sort of the left wing of the Labor Party take power, however briefly, uh, in the party, uh, that was part of their platform. That was part of their plank. Uh, but in this case, it would have been, you know, nationwide, any business right. uh, that was planning to go out of business, to close mm-hmm. up, or, or just simply sell. Um, and I think that makes sense as a law. That doesn't really, even that doesn't it, it, even like violate any right. sort of property rights regime. Yeah, it, not even saying you know that's necessarily always going to work. And Maybe. not even saying that the workers want it. Like, right. what if some of the workers like don't want to buy it? Right. Like, okay, that's still an option. Yeah, they may see this as just like, hey, I'm just doing this for a little while. It's not. I'm yeah. not going to make a life out of it, or I don't want to put you know that kind of investment forward. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, this it's all really. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Mr. Anderson in the comments uh, mentioned um, where you can have you know consumer-owned or maybe like neighborhood-owned type businesses where the un- the employees themselves are unionized. And so again, right. there's kind of both going on. Uh, he gave the example of a community-owned grocery store mm-hmm. where, and you know, so maybe the community, the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some sort of democratic ownership structure there where everybody has a piece uh, in the operations and the ownership of the grocery store. Meanwhile, whoever goes to work for the store could be unionized and you know negotiate with the board or right. governing structure of the grocery store. I think those types, types of things we need so much more of and – Really, I think there's a lot of opportunities here for for labor to to move in this direction and collaborate mm-hmm. with each other because we aren't capitalists. We don't have right. capital. We don't have right. enough money to just go out and buy properties like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and if you're interested in supporting something like that, the Bank of Labor 
is a really, really cool thing. They are owned by the operating engineers, I think, and their employees are represented by, I believe, the Teamsters. The, no, the mine workers. The mine workers. That's right. That's right. Their employees are yeah. represented by the uh, mine workers. Shout out to David's story. I, I had no idea. I, I the machine. Yeah, never the mach- heard of them, and, and David's stories, how I learned about that. The Machinists Local 44 and their state council use the Bank of Labor. The North Alabama Labor Council uses the Bank of Labor. The Huntsville Industrial Workers of the World uses the Bank of Labor. The only reason that our show hasn't switched to the Bank of Labor is because we've got like a thousand checks with our Redstone Federal Credit Union on it. So I want to use all those checks because we spent good money on them because they're union printed checks. Did you know that you can get union printed checks? You can and we have them. So... You know, anyway, the Bank of Labor, look it up. Good stuff. And uh, Austin uh, and your friends, we need a cooperatively owned, worker-run brewery in North Alabama. Uh, we need yep. a, we need cooperatively owned, worker-run, uh, lots of things. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, maybe just the whole world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but short of that, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities and it would be a great thing to do here in North Alabama. Um, something uh, I've learned from Professor Wolf is, uh, I believe in Italy and, and perhaps some other European countries, but definitely in Italy, uh, part of their unemployment laws and, and unemployment insurance system is that if you have multiple workers who are unemployed they can actually more or less like pool their unemployment checks uh, and get support to start a co-op. So, yeah, if like, you know, you and five or six other folks get laid off at at your uh, place of business and, you know, you could you could draw on employment while you're searching for other work or in this system, uh, you and your five or six friends who just got laid off with you, y'all can all come together devise a plan and actually get some support from the state there to start your own co-op. You know, that's not a radical measure. It's not like Italy is uh, a paradise and and doesn't have many of the same issues we have. But that's – here we go. Here's a real-life example of how um, just a slight little tweak in the law, slight little changes in the way we think about things and and invest in things can provide – whole new opportunities for the way we operate so great stuff uh I, mm. I, yeah i could talk about that all day and i'm looking forward to really learning more about this yeah we have talked to the people from the appeal yes the appeal they went to a worker run media worker run media they don't yeah. own it but they run it they have like investors or something and we interviewed them as they were going through that process so that's something that you could go back and yeah look. and and our friends uh at means tv mm-hmm. uh are really trying to you know blaze a trail along those lines but for a media platform and and you know the idea of being kind of like a worker own uh co-op netflix um uh, I know we talked to some of our wobbly sisters down in uh, Florida. Uh, gosh, I forget was that I forget the name of the restaurant there. But uh, when we did our series of IWW interviews, I know that 
in one of those cases, some of those sisters were were actually going to start their own yes, co-op yes. food service. Oh, I forgot so, what it was called. Yeah, so uh, we ha- I haven't heard anything from them. Um, so I don't know if they're still you know doing that project. Yeah. If they are, uh, yeah, definitely definitely want to see that. But um, yeah, I, I think we have to think outside the box as labor folks, and you know, especially. <clears throat> In a country and in a state where so few folks do uh, belong to unions or even have a realistic chance of seeing a union, so many folks, it just seems so far off, like, yeah, it's a great idea, but, like, it'll never happen where I work. Or, you know, maybe they're in a weird, you know, maybe they're gig workers or freelance, whatever the situation may be. Um, I, I think that's got to be a tool in our toolbox that we combine and supplement with um, our just we have to have the focus of organizing workplaces and organizing workers and building uh, a strong, robust labor movement. And I think it all just goes hand in hand. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so that is going to be it for us today, folks. Uh, That's it for today's episode of the Valley Labor Report. We appreciate your time. If you would like to help us stay on the air, you can or buy our new hat. Yeah. Make a one-time or recurring donation. All of that on, here we go, again, a union platform, unionly.io slash o slash tvlr, unionly.io slash o slash tvlr, no caps. If you caps anything, it's going to mess it up. Okay, no caps. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail like Austin did or uh, share your thoughts about today's episode, ask us a question, share a win, we would love to get some of those. We would love to get some voicemails telling us stories about how you have been able to win in your workplace with your union, with your brothers and sisters, something like that. The number is 844-899-TVLR. 844-899-8857. Don't forget to donate to the mine workers. Uh, Fundraisers are still ongoing. I believe it's in the show notes. Uh, And, of course, you can can find that pretty easy. Um, And don't forget to like and subscribe and share and all that good stuff. We're we're bad about forgetting to remind folks of that, but but yeah, do share the share the stuff. I don't know what's going on, but the last couple weeks, like like the we haven't been getting as many people like watching the the clips and stuff throughout the week. I don't know what the deal is with that, but like that's a that's a free easy way you can really support the project. And um, you know if you if you support what we're trying to do here in bringing news and analysis from and by and for the labor movement here in Alabama that's an easy way you can you can help out the cause yeah. uh, and chances are there's someone in your life you know that might be intrigued by what we're talking about and and the type of guests that we're bringing so uh, please you know do whatever you yeah. can there on, the, on those fronts I'm not a social media guy myself so I, I feel that if you're not uh, but hey, talk to folks. Yeah. However, however you communicate, whether you send emails, our social media, or write a damn letter, uh, whatever it is, spread the word. Spread yeah. the word. We appreciate it. And I'll, I'll be on Ben Burgess's show debunking yeah. anti-union arguments. That's uh, great he's stuff. A, he's a big YouTuber, 
big YouTube guy. Yeah. Um, so so we'll had, be- he's had stuff in Jacobin and and mm-hmm. all over the place. He he did Good speak stuff. with us during our, our seventy two hour marathon. He did. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. So great to see to that. that. Looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week.